Thank you, Carolyn. Good morning, family. If you would please open your Bibles to John chapter 19, and if you're using a Bible in the room, which I would encourage you to do because the verses won't be up on the screen, please go ahead and turn to page 905, 905, and if you're online at home, grab a Bible and pull it up on your iPhone, iPad, Android for the 2% of people still using those, and get John 19 open. Um, Today, we are in, actually, I believe, if I counted correctly, the 47th installment in our series through the Gospel of John in a series we've called Believe, and I'm super grateful today at where this text has landed because last time I was up here, I was giving you the bad news of unbelief. (laughs) Today, we, um, we we come to the hill far away. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. That's where we come in John 19. It all stops here today. It is a place called Golgotha, Calvary, the place of a skull, the place of both horror and wonder, the place where divine justice and love intersect on a vertical and horizontal wood beam. It's the place where a common execution, uh, 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 a common execution means would become the emblem of the followers of Jesus even to this day. And if you were to travel to Jerusalem to visit Skull Hill, called so because of the the image of a skull etched into the mountain, you would find that it really is the hill far away because in front of uh, Golgotha or the place of a skull is a bus station that quite literally blocks the view of the skull. There's a viewing area off to the side. And quite honestly, you cannot go to the top and put your feet in the dirt of where these events would have taken place because of the fact that there's a Muslim burial ground up there. And so we, we, we quite literally are geographically distanced from this hill far away. But I would like to say that it's often distant in our understanding, distant in our affection, distant in our experience. And so my prayer this week has been, And it is right now that the Holy Spirit of the living God would come and and make this hill far away very, very near to our experience and to our understanding. And um, I remember my mom telling the story of her conversion, if you will, coming to know Jesus, shifting from one way of living to the other. And it was the week of April 8th, 1973, when my mom got a knock on a door from a woman named Rosemary D'Alessandro. And Rosemary was on the welcoming committee of, uh, of St. John's Catholic Church. My mother welcomed her into the home. We had just moved in about five months ago. And they began to talk and share, uh, you know, just different things about family. Uh, Rosemary had uh, two daughters and one son, and our family had just moved in. And I was just chilling in my crib. I was uh, just about to turn one year old, and she was happy to take Rosemary to introduce her to my cute little self in the other room. So they had a great conversation. But it was one week later, my mom turned on the television, and um, she, she, she uncovered a tragic story that on April 19th, one day before my birthday, my one-year birthday, seven-year-old Joan D'Alessandro Rosemary's daughter knocked on her neighbor's door to deliver Girl Scout cookies and was never seen again. She was tragically assaulted and murdered. And this set my mom reeling on a spiritual journey. Her her driving question being, why? Why, God? Why would you possibly allow something like this to happen? 
So a few weeks later, the doorbell would ring once again, and it was a Jehovah's Witness young gal, and, um, and my mom invited her in. And so for the good part of a year, she was studying the Bible with Jehovah's Witnesses, learning about the Bible and who God was according to the Jehovah's Witness faith. But something did not settle right with my mom. She had Catholic roots, and she just could not square what she was being taught with the biblical truth that was latent in her soul. So it wasn't until one day Florence Richardson, who was my babysitter, came down. Now, praise Jesus, Florence was a good old-fashioned Assemblies of God follower of Jesus, and she must have picked up, and perhaps she saw the Jehovah's Witnesses coming into our home, and she said, oh, heavens no. <laughs> and, um, and she began to talk to my mom about Jesus, and the, the crux of the, center, the conversation centered on the cross of Jesus. And God began to awaken my mom to what was once just a symbol for her of Jesus mounted on a cross in an ornate artistic way. She began to understand something about the character of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, the love of God, and God began to just connect the dots for her. And so she went from the cross being a mere symbol to the significance of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so that forever changed my mom. It forever changed our family lineage. And the fact that my mom lived with this problem for the first decades of her life, I believe is a problem that we all have or could have. And the problem is this. We are over-familiar with the symbol of the cross and under-familiar with the significance of the cross. We have so trivialized the cross into a trinket, a clothing emblem, a necklace, a tattoo. Now listen, I've, I've got a tattoo that includes a cross that's very meaningful for me. It used to be on a, bi on a muscle bicep over here, but I don't know what happened over the years. So I'm not hating on tattoos. I'm not, definitely not hating on tattoos of the cross. I love it. But I will tell you that if you were to pull the average cross token trinket wear in person, cross tattoo have in person, you would find a thinness that is borderline offensive, right? Like, it's just a thing. We've even trivialized the um, phrase like, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. It's, it's just it's so common. It's so common and so thin. But there is such significance to the precious work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so what we're going to do today as we ingest this passage, we're going to ingest it in four sections. And we're simply going to ask two questions of each section in this passage. And those two questions are, number one, what happened? Number two, what does it mean? And by doing so, may the spirit of the living God indeed draw us nearer to the depth and the significance and the glory of the work of Jesus on the cross. So let's jump in together in verse 17, technically 16b. So here we go. It says this. Uh, so they took Jesus, the soldiers, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place they called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic, Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, 
do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So, so this first section is the crucifixion. And what happened was that King Jesus was crucified. The text says he went out. He went out of his own accord. And interestingly, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right, there's four accounts, uh, gospel accounts of Jesus' life from different angles and vantage points and perspectives. Um, they said that he was led away, which is very powerful because oftentimes what happened was that those being crucified would, would be, um, they would, they would uh, the, 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 the soldiers that were beating and marching these, uh, these, these convicted criminals to the crucifixion would be behind them, whipping them and flogging them because they would be going insane and wanting to stop and wanting to depart. So the, the soldiers would be behind those being crucified. In this case, the soldiers are in front of Jesus and he was willingly led away. Isaiah 53, 7 says, like a lamb to the slaughter. Reminding us of, of what John had said in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes it from me, meaning his life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And so what happened is he would take upon himself the vertical cross beam, not, not the whole cross where we see oftentimes in pictures, Jesus with the whole cross. The tradition was just the horizontal cross beam, which was about 100 pounds. He would take that upon himself and he began to walk this via dolorosa through the streets, the way of suffering, being mocked and spat upon. You can picture a child saying to a parent, who, who is this? And the parent saying, that guy is such a joke. He claimed to be God. He, he had these like miracles. He was trying to presto change on people. You could picture the, the mocking and the spitting and the, and the questioning that would happen as Jesus walked down to this, this Via Della Rosa on his way to the Skull Hill. This crucifixion wasn't just a means of execution. It was a psychological warfare intimidation mechanism for anyone who would challenge the Roman Empire. It was designed to inflict maximum pain whilst as well being the slowest possible way to die. Uh, it was reserved for traitors, for slaves, for foreigners. In fact, it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. It was so horrible. So they would take these primitive nails, six to eight inches, and these experienced executioners knew exactly where to put these nails to cut the tendons that ran up the uh, length of the arm up to the shoulders, and they would put them in the hands, and they would put it into the feet of Jesus, and they would raise the cross, and I know that we, we often picture this up on a hill really high, and the cross being mounted really high, but it was at, at eye level that they would mount these people, so that you could physically walk up and lock eyes with the person being crucified, and you could spit, and you could mock, and you could touch this is what Jesus is enduring. And so the person on the cross would, would, would struggle to just have to lift their feet up to get a breath of air, and eventually they would succumb to dehydration, loss of blood, trauma, shock, fear, and sheer exhaustion. And we, we just have to say that after all that we experience, those of you that have been consistently attending this Believe series, it's just crazy that someone so beautiful and good and kind, raising people from the dead, healing people, 
loving people, weeping for people, would end up there. So what does it mean? What does it mean? So to grasp the significance about what this particular crucifixion of Jesus, King of the Jews, meant, you you have to understand blood and sacrifice in the Bible. Hebrews 9.22 sums up this issue by saying that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so if we go way back to the beginning and we trace this theme, God created a world, that world was very good, and when sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the first thing God does is God takes initiative to come down from heaven into the Garden of Eden in the same way he would come in the person of Jesus, right? He came down into the Garden of Eden, and what does he do? He becomes the first clothing designer. He becomes the gap, right? This is the original gap. And what he does is he kills animals and he covers Adam and Eve's nakedness with those that shed blood. He was covering their shame and their nakedness, right? And if you trace this theme, which we could literally be here for four hours looking at this theme through the whole Bible, but let me give you a a summary. Think about Genesis 22 when God says to Abraham, take your son, your one and only son. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. 2,000-ish years before Jesus would come, this story happens. Take your one and only son. It says Isaac was carrying the wood on his back, just like Jesus was carrying the horizontal beam on his back. And Isaac's like, where's the lamb? And Abraham's like, God's gonna provide a lamb. And if you read the story, God didn't provide a substitute lamb. He provided a substitute ram. He provided a substitute ram because it wasn't time for the substitute lamb. We read in the beginning of John, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about this incredible story. You want a story to trump all stories? You want a narrative that makes sense of our whatever climate we're in right now? You you come up to me afterwards and tell me a story that trumps this beautiful story that was writ large by the Father since the beginning of time. So here we see the Son of God as the substitute lamb on the cross of Jesus Christ, shedding his his blood for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Think about what Pastor Marvin presented to us when he took the branch and painted the the door in the Passover story, right? The Passover story in, in Exodus, in the same way God's people were slaves in Egypt to the Egyptians, we are enslaved to our sin. And now God says, Take a lamb, take the blood of the lamb, put it over your doorposts, and the judgment of God will pass over you. This whole picture of Jesus being crucified and shedding blood is rooted in this story of blood and sacrifice that God set up this whole entire system in the scriptures where the bleeding of lambs was heard time and again, where the high priest would have to make atonement for the sins of the people of God day in and day out. Hebrews 10, 11 says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the sacrifices that can never take away sins. We should get tired reading the sacrificial system stories of the Bible. I bet it would get so wearying every day, every week having to wake up kill another lamb, put the blood, go through all the ritual. These people, I mean, they had to be so burnt out of that. It says, though, in Hebrews that when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God. What happened at the cross and what it means for us is that the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God bled. 
God bled for us. This one man bled for us. And in so doing, the punishment that we deserved fell upon Jesus. It's an incredible, incredible story. If we want to see a sign, maybe people are saying, I want to see a sign to believe in God. Look at the sign above the head of the king of the universe. It's right there. This is the one. And it was put in a language. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Pastor Jack last week did such a great job amplifying this whole scene of Jesus as king and all the political dynamics and the coercion and the manipulation. You can't make up that the Jews waited until the Passover to want Jesus to be crucified. You can't make up that, that the signs that specifically said that, that, that this was written in Aramaic, which was the language of religion, Greek, which was the language of culture, and Latin, which was the language of power, the language of Rome, so that, that everyone could see the gospel of the kingdom enabled to be preached to all tongues, all nations. This good news is for everyone, that Christ, who lived the perfect life we could not live, hung there bleeding for the complete forgiveness of your sins. That's what it means. This is a significant historical event. Now, secondly, let's look at the fulfillment of Scripture. Let's look at verse 23. It says this in this next section. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now remember, John is writing with an express purpose um, that these signs were written so that we would believe. So in this section, what happened was this. Four soldiers, we can see that they divided the clothes four ways, were turning the, 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 the most holiest of scenes where the Son of God was dying shamefully into a Vegas circus where they're gambling for Jesus' clothing articles. Now, this actually is a, a common thing that would happen. The executioners would get paid from the selling of their garments, so doubtless that this was the first time that they'd actually gambled for the person's clothing as they hung naked on the cross. And in this case, the four garments that they were gambling for were the sandals, the belt, the headpiece, and the outer cloak that Jesus would have worn. But John writes about an extra piece called the tunic. And he points out that this garment was seamless. And even the soldiers were like, hey, you know, that's kind of a nice tunic-looking thing. You know, let's not, let's not wreck that tunic. Let's just let's gamble. Let's do some Vegas circus circus and gamble to see who's going to get that tunic. Now, guess what? For those of us that didn't fast forward in our annual plans, the Old Testament, Leviticus and stuff, you would know that that tunic was, was worn by the high priest. It was the bridge builder between God's people and a holy God. It was worn by that person who was the intermediary between God and man. To the very detail, we see an incredible articulation of prophecy being fulfilled. Now, what does that mean? Uh, it means a lot of things. Of course, it means that Christ is our great high priest, that that sacrifice was final and fulfilled. But I love that John is just exalting in the midst of the humiliation of the Son of God. He's again exalting the sovereignty of God in the fulfillment uh, 
of this prophecy. And for those, you know, analyst, algorithm type people, um, the science of probability, right? It attempts to determine the chance that a given event will occur. And there was a, a number of years ago, a professor at Westmont College uh, took a whole project on, and he wanted to calculate the probability of one man fulfilling the major prophecies that were fulfilled about Jesus. And these, uh, this project was done very, very well-rounded. He got skeptics, scientists, all sorts of people on the spectrum so that that wasn't an issue, right? That we're, we're not doing like, hey, let's do a Christian study about prophecies being fulfilled and then people be like, you guys are just biased and you're fulfilling your own stuff. He did it the right way. In fact, they submitted it to the American Scientific Association. There were like 600 university students represented in this uh, study as well. And they came to the conclusion that for one prophecy to be fulfilled, let's take Jesus being born in Bethlehem, one in 300,000 uh, chance that that could happen. Now, if we just take this out and extrapolate this, one in eight prophecies would be 10 with 17 zeros. Can't imagine what gazillion, billion, trillion number that is. But the image is that if you cover the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, mark one of them red, and say, hey, you got one shot to go flip up that red coin, have at it. That's what that is. That's 10 to the 17th power, right? Or whatever. 17 zeros. Now, if you did 48 prophecies, that's 10 with 157 zeros. And according to historian Alfred Edersheim, in total in the scriptures in his study, there are 456 prophecies about Jesus. So this is why we, by the way, we love engaging in, in gospel conversations, spiritual conversations with people who don't know Jesus. If you're watching online and you don't know Jesus, Zip us an email, put in the chat, whatever. We love skeptics and people that want to just really genuinely explore. And one of the things I would say about that is that if you actually dive into the historical documents of the scriptures and you vet this out honestly with integrity, your mind is going to be absolutely blown. And you'll join a string of scholars and skeptics that took that journey and said, I can only lay at the feet of Jesus and say, behold the Lamb. So these four soldiers acting the fool point to the sovereignty of God. Now the spotlight shifts to another group of four women and, uh, and John himself. Let's look at this next section in verse 25. It says, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, that's how he wrote about himself, uh, when he saw the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So what happened here in this section is that Jesus connects his mother and his best friend. He connects the two, and in so doing, he ensures that his mother, who is likely a widow at that time, Joseph is off the scene, um, ensures that this woman is taken care of. It's actually the language that John uses is, is legal adoption language. So there is a dynamic here of family going on. And what this means for us, I think, is beautiful at a couple levels. First of all, I've got to clear something up because I have no 
possible way for you to understand this unless I tell you, like, I have no way to win when I say, if I ever just say to my wife, hey, woman, can you uh, grab me a hot dog, right? Like, there's no chance I get any good scenario or nothing out of that, right? Zero. So how does Jesus get away with it? Well, he doesn't get away with that because it's a very, very affectionate term. It's like saying, dear mother, dear mother. But more so, the first time Jesus calls his mother, dear woman, is in John chapter 2, at the wedding of Cana, when he says, dear woman, why do you involve me in this? It's not his time. Because at the wedding in Cana, as the water is being turned into wine, Jesus is thinking about the cup of suffering that he'll have to endure at the cross, and he says, dear woman, please, not now, not now. And so he affectionately calls her that there. And it's interesting that he does because if you think about the first 30 years of Jesus' life, it was a mother-to-a-son relationship. I'm sure all you moms in here are like, hey, did you hear that? Like, 30 years, I'm still your mom, right? Like, we're good? <laughs> but um, uh, it was at that time at the launch of his public ministry that Jesus redefines that relationship as dear woman because Jesus is Mary's Lord and Savior not just Mary's son. Very powerful. And so in doing this redefinition of relationship and saying, here is your son, uh, here is your mother, um, first of all, let's, let's say, let's put this in perspective too. So imagine, guys, you get the man flu. And when you get the man flu, it's like all, your world gets smaller and smaller and smaller by the Oh, I'm in so much pain. Can you get me some soup? Me, me, me. I can't do anything. Hey, honey, can you go take the trash out? The trash is coming tomorrow. Oh, I got the man flu. I can't do it. Me, 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 me. Like when you're sick, like your world gets more and more internal, right? Like we're the most selfish, sick people in the world, men. <laughs> amen. Finally, I got one. Preaching about the cross and I get amen about the man flu. It's okay. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm messing with y'all. So, so here's the thing. Let's exalt the character of God and make this about who this is, which is Jesus, and say he's suffering the most horrific, tragic, horrific death you could suffer, and through the blood washing over his eyeballs, he has the sympathy, the love, the empathy to, to, to get the focus off of himself. That's beautiful. It's beautiful love, vast as the ocean, that Jesus would care enough to ensure that his mother was taken care of and that this spiritual family was formed, which I think is really important for us as Trinity Church. I was reflecting just on this particular part of the story, and I think it's um, very important to um, just think about this theme. A lot of us tend to think about church equals event, right? Church is what we're doing right now. I go to church, meaning I come on Sunday morning. And for the New Testament, church equals family. It's more than that, and there's more than you could get it. But really, it's a family. And Jesus, by doing this, points us to this beautiful thing of who we are. And I, I know that churches are never perfect. Trinity Church is not a perfect church. But we love the history, the heart, and the practice of attempting and, and actually being spiritual family, to care for the orphan and the widow, to care for each other in such a powerful way. And I want us to continue to get better at being that kind of a family and encourage you as we're rolling out, you know, it's interesting, we do announcements every week and it's, it's something we can get numb to, like, all right, now I'm going to listen to the announcements. But these things represent important realities in the life of our church. 
And you're going to hear about things like disciple-making communities and go, that sounds kind of cool. Well, it'd be really cool if we actually step in and embrace being spiritual family, because that's what we're trying to do, is actually do what Jesus does here, which is say, you know, there's something that even is more powerful than biological family, right? This spiritual family that we are and that we'll get to be together as a community forever. So we've listened to the, 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 the reality of the crucifixion, the reality of prophecy being fulfilled, the reality of this family dynamic. Let's look at the last section here that's labeled the death of Jesus. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, there's another prophecy, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. Um, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Uh, now, what's interesting is Jesus was offered, before this, he was offered uh, a gall, which was a poison that was um, designed to numb the effects of crucifixion and, and put, the, put the person at ease. Some scholars believe this one was actually to prolong it. And interestingly enough, they gave him this particular sour wine on a hyssop branch, which was the branch used at the Passover to put blood on the door, and they held it to his mouth, and Jesus actually received the sour wine, and he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit willingly. So what happened in this passage? Jesus cried, it is finished, and he died victoriously. He died victoriously. Amen. Victoriously. Now, what does this mean? Have you ever thought your casserole or your cookies were done in the oven and then you, you, know, you pull them out and you're like, oh, it's got 15 more minutes. Honey, can you put the timer on 15 more minutes? Um, and in the case of the cookies, you leave them out because you like the cookie dough vibe, you know, a little crispy, but you got the soft cookies, right? They were undercooked, right? They were not finished. Or you ask your children, hey, you know, I'll pick a random name. Hey, Olivia, is your room clean? That's my daughter. She's right there. Um, yeah, mom, it's clean. And uh, upon further review, you find out that it was not finished, <laughs> right? Now, I actually had a great, uh, the sporting experience in my life. My son, Connor, is senior year of high school. Um, we are uh, headed for the first time in school's history to the regional championship. And it was the farm boys of Mason, Michigan, the Bulldogs heading up against Brother Rice. Well-trained program, high reputation, high ranking in the state. I don't even think we were ranked in the state. So all week I'm like, oh, you guys won already. Well, good job, you know, because it's the David and Goliath matchup and there's no chance this thing's happening. So the game starts. We're at Lawrence Tech Stadium. It's cold. We're out there. And, you know, just before the half, it's like 7-0 Brother Rice. They weren't playing that well. Uh, sorry, coach, if you're listening to this, but you know that you guys weren't playing that well. And, um, and so somehow we scored. So it's like tied at the half. I'm like, okay, well, it's, it'll be on. You know, it's a game of momentum. Like we're probably donezoed in the second half. And uh, sure enough, we're getting kind of donezoed. So they come out. They're doing good. It's a little bit of an up and down game. Getting down to the wire, though, we're close enough. And I think we're up by, uh, by a little bit. But with 121 left in the game on a 10-yard touchdown pass, Brother Rice scores to pull ahead. And it's 17-14. And if you were reading the tea leaves of the game up until that point, like, it's over. In a minute, um, 21 left, like, uh, we're not coming back. It's, it's over. So I'm crushed. And then the worst thing happens. This Brother Rice uh, parent happened to be coming out of concessions, and he's parading himself right in front. Here's the Mason stands back here. 
And he's like, bye-bye, nice try, bye-bye. And I'm like, I'm, my blood's boiling. I'm trying not to take this too seriously and guard my heart against idolatry and guard my heart against my Marine coming out and just <laughs> slapping you. So it's over. I mean, it really is over. It really is over. But with a miracle, 63-yard drive with six seconds left, our freshman quarterback throws a six-yard touchdown pass. Now it is finished. Like, it was, I mean, I lost my voice worse than I've ever lost my voice in the entire world. It was crazy. Like, there was no chance for the comeback. We slayed Goliath, brought the head back, and we were just, it was done. I mean, it was done, done at that point. It was really done. So when Jesus cried, it is finished. It's one word in the Greek language, and the word is tetelestai. And this word is actually a happy word. It's the victor's cry. And not only was it really game over, right? Because there you got like, think about on a spiritual level, you've got the Satan who is actually a real evil being thinking like, ha ha, you know, he's this guy like, bye-bye, it's over, bye-bye. And then, you know, you've got this actual complete finishing, the word means a completion, but also the fulfillment of his purpose. And in the Greco-Roman culture, the word tetelestai was used by artists. So when a painter or a sculptor put the finishing touches on a vivid landscape or a marble bust, he would step back and just murmur tetelestai. Jesus finished the masterpiece of this amazing story of redemption in this moment that the father commissioned the son to do. When merchants uh, had a promissory note that was paid, they would write tetelestai across the note. And so I want you to be thinking this week, because I'm not going to answer this question for you. I want you to be thinking, in what ways are you living as if Jesus's words, it is finished, is that you believe it's not complete, that you think you still owe a debt to God if you've trusted Jesus, and that shame and guilt and that thing that weighs you down, you know, that you, you're, you're, you're showing that we don't actually believe it is finished. So that note, uh, the, the paid in full, it, when prisoners were convicted of a crime and thrown in prison, uh, the certificate of death with all of the crimes were listed, and so people could see on that list in front of the prisoner what crimes were committed, why they were there, when he had paid his penalty, that document would go back to the judge, and the judge would say, to Telestai. So all, all of the crimes against God that we've committed in the form of our sin, right, put those on a piece of paper one day and stamp across that to Telestai. It's an action that is complete, and the result has an ongoing effect. Final analogy, an archaeological dig in Egypt uncovered the office of a CPA. So shout out to all you CPAs. They found a stack of bills with the word tetelestai inscribed across each bill. It is finished, paid in full. Sin is a debt that we will never repay, and invisibly, even though many people in our world don't even have this narrative anymore about the history of redemption and blood and God's purpose in the sacrifice of Jesus, invisibly we feel this debt. We live with this sense of trying to be as good as we can to satisfy this holy God that we don't even know. And the reality is the good news we proclaim to you, to the world, to the heavenly realms is that it is finished. Jesus didn't say, I am finished, by the way. As we know where the story goes, he said, it is finished, and it is no better way I can think to close our time together than by this famous quote, it's a little long, so brace yourself, by a guy named Charles Spurgeon, 
And for the theological nerds in the house, all two of you, that you're like, oh, craps, Charles Spurgeon. You don't have to love everything Charles Spurgeon says. I think you do have to love this because it's deep and beautiful and profound. When he was preaching on this word, tetelestai. So please let me close with this and let our hearts get caught up into the significance of the cross. Here's what he says. Tetelestai conveys an ocean of meaning and a drop of language, a mere drop. It would need all the other words that were ever spoken or can ever be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high, I cannot attain to it. It is deep, I cannot fathom it. It is finished is the most charming note in all of Calvary's music. The fire has passed upon the lamb. He has borne the whole of the wrath that was due his people. This is the royal dish of the feast of love. What a grand utterance. Now are we safe, for salvation is complete. The sin debt was now to the last farthing all discharged. The atonement and propitiation were made once and for all and forever by the one offering made in Jesus' body on the tree. There was the cup. Hell was in it. The Savior drank it. Not a sip and then a pause, not a draft or a single act of uh, drinking, and then a ceasing. He drained it till there is not a drag left for any of his people. The great ten-thronged whip of the law was worn out upon his back, right? Cursed is he who hung on a tree. The law, breaking the law, um, demanded this type of punishment. There is no lash left with which to smite one for whom Jesus died. The great cannonade or continuous heavy gunfire of God's justice has exhausted all its ammunition. There is nothing left to be hurled against the child of God. Beloved, do you believe these great benefits are yours in Christ? Yours in Christ. Sheathed is thy sword, O justice. Silenced is thy thunder, O law. There remains nothing now of all the griefs and pains and agonies which chosen sinners ought to have suffered for their sins. For Christ has endured all for his own beloved, and it is finished. Christ has paid the debt which all the torments of eternity could not have paid. Once again, when he said, it is finished, Jesus had totally destroyed the power of Satan, of sin, and of death. The champion accepted the challenge to do battle for our soul's redemption against all our foes, and he met sin. Horrible, terrible, all but omnipotent sin nailed him to the cross, but in that deed, Christ nailed sin also to the tree. There they both did hang together, sin and sin's destroyer. Sin destroyed Christ, and by that destruction, Christ destroyed sin. Amen. Is the cross a little more significant today than it was before we came in, fresh in our minds? I say that it is. And I was thinking about that story of, of, of this precious girl who was murdered, and just the good that came from this one girl who, who passed away, this, this tragedy. The mom became an advocate and instilled a law called Jones Law and um, you know, lived her life, obviously, never the same at the loss of a child, but some good came through that. Only through God himself dying can good come to humanity and good come to you and I. And every single person, doesn't matter how rebellious, how far from God you've been, this is love, vast as the ocean. This is the significance of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We behold the cross today and we say, Thank you, God, that it is more than a symbol, but it is significant. We love you, Jesus, and as we worship you in song and communion, draw near to us as we draw near to you. 
we pray. Displayed for us, oh God, we thank you for your cross. Lifting up on Calvary's hill, we curse your name, and even still, you bore our shame. And paid the cost. Oh God, we thank you for the cause. Behold the Lamb, the story of redemption.
Can we do this? Can we all stand together if you aren't already? And then can you take your communion elements? And uh, as, we receive, as we receive these together, just a, a reminder of um, what Brian even just shared with us this morning, that his work is complete. And we can approach the cross with humility and with confidence. And the invitation for us as believers is that it is complete and it is finished for those who believe that Christ's work on the cross covered all of our sin. So if that invitation for you this morning, it's, it's available. And even as we've reflected on our time of the significance of the cross, not just the symbol of it, but the significance of it, just take time even now. If there's things to confess, things to repent of in his presence and in the presence of brothers and sisters. His work on the cross is complete. So on that night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, broke the bread and said, this is my body given for you. And so we remember Jesus' complete sacrifice as we take this bread together. In the same way, he took the cup, he said, this cup is the cup of my blood, which was given freely for you. And as you drink it, remember me. Let's remember Jesus' sacrifice together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the cross. Thank you for your grace in revealing just even more how significant it is. It doesn't lose significance. You just open our eyes and reveal, yeah, the fullness of significance and the fullness of your love for us. And so we thank you for your sacrifice, for your love, and for the complete work you've done. We pray all this in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Excuse me. Amen. Why don't you say it for me? Amen. All right, there we go. Hey, before we finish our time in worship, we're going to continue our worship because you probably noticed there's a baptismal here. Yeah, and so what's going to happen is this. Um, our drummer, Joe Marcotte, is going to make his way down. Yeah, and then Joe, your family can come up. So um, worship in the park was two Thursdays ago. Joe was scheduled to not only be baptized but also be our drummer for that worship time in the park. Uh, and then Joe... Uh, came down with COVID, so he wasn't able to participate that. He also missed summer camp, um, which with, as he just graduated um, at Ho Owasso High School and is going to U of M in the fall. Yeah, okay, all right. Hey, we love Wolverines here, but we love Spartans more. Um, that's not true. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to switch mics. Uh, I'll just walk over there, Nick, and then uh, we'll continue this conversation about Joe Marcotte. All right, so Joe um, wasn't able to be at worship in the park. Um, so we had talked about uh, before he goes to college, yes, a, a great college, uh, University of Michigan, um, he wanted to be baptized. And so before he leaves uh, next week, what better time, right, than with the church 
family, and he, Joe wanted to make this public declaration. There's some things you wanted to share with us? So ever since I joined Trinity Church in about the seventh grade, I knew that this place had it right, and they've really helped me grow my faith, especially the worship team and how they, they've reached out to me and supported me, and they've really helped me focus on my faith and continue to grow with Christ. And I just want to make a public declaration on my faith before I go off to school and make a commitment with God that I'll follow him the rest of my life. Well, Joe, is it your desire to be baptized here today as a public declaration of your faith in Jesus? Yeah. All right. Well, Joe Marcotte, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The old has gone, and the new has come. We had this uh, um, thought that Joe is going to play. We have one more song, and he's actually going to play Sopping Wet. What a beautiful display of what worship can look like when you not only get baptized, but you're going to play the drum sopping wet. You want another towel? Here, take another. Take one for the, for the drum stool, too. There you go. All right. Let's, let's continue in our worship of uh, the, the completed work of Jesus, even through Joe's life and all of ours. taken as a witness to a public baptism, Lord, and we just thank you for the new life that is offered to each and every one of us through the saving grace of what you did for us on the cross. Oh, Lord, let us just turn our hearts back to you and to making you the king of it all, Lord, um, and thank you for your grace. Thank you for always being faithful to be with your children through everything that we go through, Lord. And you know every single situation that we encounter um, and that you just go before us and you are right with us through it all. So we thank you again. We love you and we praise you, Jesus. And it's in your name.
good. So good. Oh, man, so good. Thank you, Jesus. Um, thank you for joining in that celebration of, man, so many things of why he's good and why he's significant and why he's worthy of all of our praise. So thank you for joining in on that. Just a couple things before we dismiss. Um, just a couple of reminders. One is Carolyn shared a lot of, just like Brian was talking about, there's a lot of announcements. We can gloss through them. And you know what we miss? We miss the, the fact that we are the church. Not We don't go to church, but we are the church and we can be the church. There's so many ways that day in and day out, we can be living reminders of the freedom that we have in Jesus. And there are practical ways we can do that. Check out info.wearetrinity.com and get connected and participate uh, and find ways to, to just even bless those who are preparing to go back to school. Even, even some things that seem simple like that are, are just so significant. And then don't miss the opportunities of the ways that we have uh, to give. So that we have giving boxes out in the atrium. There's ways to do that on info.wearetrinity.com as well for online. Uh, but yeah, the, really the heart of this is for us to be the church, not just go to church, check in, and then check out. Um, what a beautiful thing, as Joe had mentioned, to be able to do this in community. How are you doing in there, man? You look great, by the way. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with us, Joe and Joe's family. Let's join in prayer as we close. Man, it is so good to be known by you, Jesus. It's so good to know that your work on the cross is complete. It's so good to know that it is finished. Forgive us for the ways that we try to finish the, the work. Help our unbelief uh, and renew our belief to the fullness of belief that you intended. And so we just ask for your wisdom, for your guidance um, to walk through these things, to not hang our head and look at our circumstances uh, and have those sit on our throne. But for you, rightly, sits on the throne and for us to raise our eyes and trust you as king, the high king, forever and our king forever. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Have a great week, y'all.